Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. Last month, the Financial Conduct Authority gave the financial advice profession an early Christmas present, the publication of its long-awaited review of the financial advice market post-RDR and FAMR. While the FCA concluded the advice market was improving, it raised concerns about the lack of competitive pressure advisors face, particularly as regards fees. It found significant price clustering, with more than 80% of advisors setting their ongoing fees at one of three price points. The regulator also said the services offered by those advisors charging as high as 1% were not noticeably different to the services offered by those charging as low as 0.5%. So what should advisors take away from this? What should they consider when setting their fees? And what does this mean for the future of ongoing fees? With me to discuss this are Tim Fassam, Director of Government Relations and Policy at PIMFA, and Alistair Walker, Managing Director at HA&W. Hello both. Hi, hi. Pleasure to be here. Thank you you for being here. Um, So, uh, Alistair, we'll we'll start with you. Um, Whether advisors like it or not, this is obviously an area of interest for the FCA. So what issues do you think about when you consider your fees and what do you think advisors should be thinking about um, when they consider this issue? Thanks. That's a that's an interesting question and an interesting aside, really, for me. The outcome, one of the outcomes from this report was for us to review the fees that we charge and actually, as part of a wider discussion, realised that we were charging you know, a, a little bit less than we felt we should. So whether that wasn't an intended consequence or not, I, I don't know. Um, I think it's it's interesting because the regulator seems to be making or taking a stance in an area that they've said previously isn't isn't of interest to them. Price controls, I think, are a dangerous path to walk down, even if it's just highlighting areas uh, that, that, that they find pe- maybe interesting. I really challenge the basis of their, or would challenge the basis of uh, reporting because the focus of the regulator seems to inexorably be on product. And so if they're assessing pricing based on product, you know, possibly based on outcomes of product, then I feel like they're a few years behind what I see both in uh, the day job, but also in the work I do with our professional body, where the focus is very much on service. And if the FCA aren't measuring service outcomes, then they can't say with any authority whether the outcomes are different or not. Mm. Interesting. And um, Tim, from your point of view, what do you think advisors should be doing or should be bearing in mind uh, to avoid an awkward conversation with the regulator if they they come to visit in a, a couple of months or so? Um, I mean, absolutely, the focus should be on on service, as Alistair says, and the offering to the customer, the value you're adding to the customer in the most uh, holistic sense. I mean, I think many of our members um, certainly do feel competitive pressure and the competition in, in the market for new customers, for existing customers is strong. And it's no surprise that prices would fix around certain clear and understandable points. I mean, nobody complains about things being 199 in Tesco's and Sainsbury's. That's not a sign there isn't competition, that one of them hasn't gone for 198 or 197. It's because certain price points make sense from a 
from an economic standpoint, but from a consumer understanding price point. So I certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't accept the argument that simply because you are you are using a round number that is a sign of a lack of competitive pressure. Um, so I think as long as you can demonstrate what the customer is getting for that fee, and that those are things that your customer is demanding, uh, and that are of value to them, um, then you should feel confident in in uh, replying to the regulator that your fee is is good value for the for the end consumer. Mm. And this this issue of service, I think, touches on that point that the FCA made, which is that it believes that. A lot of advisors charge one percent and offer the same service as char- advisors which are charging zero point five percent. There's not; it's fundamentally the same service, but some people are are paying a lot more for it. Alistair, you've as someone who's just put your fees up, indeed. Um, how do you make sure that that's not a trap you're falling into? That you're, if you're going to charge more, fine. Some people shop at Waitrose. Some people shop at Aldi. How, but how do you make sure that that's something which is justified? Yeah. As I say, um, the, the the whole topic for me is thorny because the measurements used to determine service are what matters. And I don't believe the regulator collects enough to be able to make a comment on service. So it's almost like two people looking at two different sets of numbers and drawing conclusions from, from different data sets because the regulator says, well, the service is the same and they may measure that on you know the number of, I don't know, pensions written and uh, investment policies written or whatever their measurements are, which are invariably product, because those are the returns we give back to the regulator. But certainly the the, the neck of the woods that, that I find myself in and that I find myself talking to people in, and I appreciate that it's a broad church, the world of financial advice, our product is the ongoing service, the expertise, the immeasurables, the value is around, you know, it could be uh, tax planning is a really great example. You know, how can you determine as a regulator who measures products as an output what tax planning has been undertaken um, and, and how that service compares? So I just question the basis of the um, of the reporting. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see the, the data set and how they've drawn those conclusions. Mm-hmm. Tim, do you, what do you think about what Alistair's just said? Well, I know I, I tend to agree, and I think you can even go further. So there's some research, uh, both uh, two separate pieces of research, one by the International Longevity Centre and one uh, by Royal London, that looked at the non-financial benefits of, of financial advice. So it looked at things like uh, peace of mind, confidence, stress levels, and um, that is part of the service offering. And a raw sort of numerical assessment of outcome won't capture any of that, won't capture any of the, if you like, the psychological benefits of taking uh, financial advice that may well be more resource intensive. You know, an an advisor may well have to spend more time reassuring a nervous customer than they will with a confident customer, but their economic outcomes may be quite similar. But the service offering to the, the individual who's nervous, who now feels that sense of reassurance and confidence in their finances, may be very good value. Mm. If I wanted to sort of play devil's advocate here, Alistair, maybe I could say that there are still sort of too many advisors who think that they can charge, you know, 1% on an ongoing basis, see their clients once a year, and that's pretty much it. Is that sort of the, the problem here, do you think? So I think hidden within what's quite a confused message, there's um, a core of 
legitimate uh, questions to be asked. Uh, what we don't have, I, I don't think, is clear correlation between service offered and, and pricing. And I think that's inevitable where pricing's a percentage of a, of a bigger number because it can only be a proxy for service undertaken. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't follow uh, directly that, you know, somebody with a portfolio 10 times the size is going to require 10 times the work. With that said, every pricing model, uh, and we've done a, a good chunk of research internally, and again, in the work I do with the professional body, every pricing model has its pros and cons. And the AUM model, which is what the uh, the regulators are picking up on, it has it ha- on ba- on balance seems to be the one that is well it, it, it seems to be the case considering how it's the majority of, uh, of of the way most people charge but also i see a a vocal minority of people innovating that charging structure um, we're a predominantly aum charging business however we have fixed fees in certain areas for example they're unlikely to be picked up in a in a regulator um message like this um but to answer your question you know are, are there people who are who are doing this undoubtedly and the problem is it's hard for a consumer there's a there's a fundamental issue that it's hard for a consumer to compare services and prices very easily uh, there's not very much transparency very few people publish their fees that, that's a challenge you know, I'm an advocate for everybody publishing their fees online because if clients are going to find out your fees eventually, they should be equipped with the information up front anyway. But I am very much in the minority with that opinion. Mm-hmm. Tim, what do you think? As I suggested, that the the AUM percentage charging model might not necessarily be the best solution for everybody um, for all situations. What do you think on that? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly we're not arguing that every firm is offering fantastic value to their customers. And there are some firms that the customers would be better served moving. And we know that um, some customers find it very difficult to make these sorts of decisions. The, The customers of LCF, for example, got a very bad deal. There are some serious problems with poor performance in parts of the sector, uh, largely the parts of the sector that aren't PIM for members, where, where there are real concerns and are contributing to uh, today's announcement that the uh, FSCS levy will top £1 billion next year. I think what we're arguing is that price is not on its own a predictor of whether someone's getting good value and, and a good service or not. And so... I think we'd agree that people need to be transparent about what what they're getting for that money and what what the service offering is. And I think it is to customers' advantage for there to be a selection of different models for them to choose from, both in terms of of charging, from platforms, from execution only, from various levels of advice and planning. Um, That can only be a good thing for the end consumer to have more choice. And the the, the FCA has said that there's a lot of clustering. Um, there's not much competitive pressure for uh, advisors. Tim, you, I know you've mentioned that you you would disagree with that. But taking, let's assume to start with that what the FCA says is true. Why why is there a, a lack of competitive pressure? Do you feel, Tim? So I'm not sure there is. I mean, certainly there is a a significant amount of effort in encourage any, any individual to take advice 
to um, to save, to invest for the future. These are difficult decisions for people to make. And I know most PIMFA members I speak to fight very hard for their customers and fight very hard to provide a great service to their existing customers. I think where some customers suffer is, is they find it difficult to engage with these decisions. The level of financial education and financial capability in this country is very poor. And so their ability to make a judgment on uh, whether or not they are they are well placed is not always complete. And I know many of our uh, members get very frustrated when they see customers being caught by scams or, or by the sort of near scams where people are offering uh, high, you know, very high risk, inappropriate products to to end customers. So there is this sort of interesting balance between um, you know a real fight for engaged customers a real fight to get people to to um save and invest for the future and um a, a group of customers who do struggle to understand their finances now listen, do you feel as, a, as an advisor under competitive pressure do you feel like you're you know like if you if you don't perform your 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 clients might go elsewhere do you have to sort of compete with other firms when you're taking on a new client that's a great question and the answer i think generally speaking is it doesn't feel like it but i think the competition has happened before we've actually had a conversation i suspect people actually pick up the phone to a firm like mine by the time they're very nearly at the point of making a decision who to deal with once or twice uh, in in the past year i've maybe been explicitly told that people are in conversations with others as well but i don't think that people that I certainly don't don't see a, a lot of um, shopping around happening by the time someone's picked up the phone and spoken to me. In terms of you know what what's the what's the problem? What is causing this? If you like, if it is a problem, I think we are in a sector which has all of the hallmarks of a um, of a sector ripe for effectively monopolisation. You know, we've got incredibly high barriers to entry. Uh, which which are a good thing from a consumer protection perspective, and the SCA have driven that. So high qualification requirements, strict regulatory requirements, high high fixed costs across the board, and rising, as Tim's pointed out, the FSCS levy being a particular bugbear of <laughs> most advisors. And when you've got high costs of entry uh, and high barriers to entry, you have a small population of people who are able to do the job, and those small population have better ability to set their pricing. Now, what's interesting is I think that the, the price is clustering uh, around a point, you know, might actually suggest that the pricing, not that the, that the market isn't functioning properly, that the pricing has found its level. Because what we're saying is, if you had a, if you had a fantastic opportunity to, to disrupt, if you were able to enter this high regulation, high cost, uh, high barrier to entry market and disrupt by charging significantly less and providing similar levels of service, then arguably in a world in which prices are clustered, because of something wrong with the market, you would clean up. <laughs> you know, you would be the next big thing. And the fact that we're not seeing that suggests to me not that the market's broken, but the market is functioning as expected. Mm -hmm. I suppose that what you've said about people having shopped around by the time they get to you um, would be... I suppose, okay, from the FCA's point of view, if, as you say, more advisors put their fees online, more advisors were open and not open about it. Is that potentially an, an easy way that they could, um, you know, maybe um, pacify the FCA to, to an extent, Alistair? 
I've seen arguments for and against. Uh, so our argument for putting pricing online is, is based on sort of core values of the business. Uh, so it isn't that we feel we sh- should or that there's external pressure on us. It's just that you know, I hate doing business with people where I don't know what they're going to charge me before <laughs> before I've rung them. And so I don't want people to have to have that choice with me. But should everybody propose a price? I think that would be the case if people made a decision of whether to buy. And in this sense, I mean, buy the advisor, buy the service from them based on price. I think it would be important to have that information. I'm not entirely convinced that's the case. I don't think people are making that decision, for example, to deal with us because they've gone online, used our pricing calculator and gone, oh, wow, they're a really great deal for us compared to another. Um, So I don't think people are deciding on price. Mm -hmm. Tim, do you you think that um, more transparency on pricing can can help on this issue? Um, I think there's a, a tendency with our regulator to always demand more information as put into the public domain. And what we know is that actually that doesn't particularly help consumer decision-making. It tends to overwhelm them. Um, and so I think what's clear what is that there is a need for transparency, both in, in the expectation of what people can get from an advisor and what it's going to cost them. But it's got to come at the right moment. And if you give individuals that information uh, at the wrong point or in the wrong format, it can simply lead to additional confusion. So I think as long as people are are, are being transparent in advance of uh, any anything being signed or any contract, that's what's important and that it comes in the right point in the discussion and the conversation. Because I think just particularly some of the information about costs and charging uh, if you look at the PREPS regime and you look at some of the ways MIFI Fawcett is is actively confusing for customers. Um, and I think until we've got that that right, we need to be able to give that information, you know, uh, ideally give it information to individuals at the chance when they've got the best chance of understanding it. Mm-hmm. Alistair touched on um, the issue of whether price has found its level. There's obviously a lot of downward pressure in the um in, in certainly in the asset management market, and there has been downward pressure on fees in the um, in the advice market. Tim, do you think that as long as the downward pressure continues, is that is this really a, is this even an, a, an issue in the in the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think in a competitive market, as as I said, you you will find your price, and the competitive pressure will uh, ensure that that's the sort of lowest fair price available in the market. I think what's coming on the other side to, to, to sort of touch on issues we've already spoken about is pressure on costs. So whether that's the FSCS levy, regulatory fees and charges, whether that's uh, the cost of hiring staff, we know there is a shortage of qualified financial advisors in this country at the moment. Um, so that pressure on cost will uh, will need to be taken into account when firms are setting their pricing. And in particular, the cost of regulation and compensation and supervision is increasingly one that our members raise with us as becoming very hard to manage. Mm. Okay. Uh, Alistair, what do you think on this? Do you think downward pressure is likely to continue? It's interesting. I I don't see downward pressure on advisor pricing at all. I see upward pressure on costs. Uh, you know, was, uh, would would echo t- Tim's views there. Absolutely. I don't see downward pressure on pricing. The 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 asset management downward pressure, I suspect, speaks to a different set of 
again, I, I kind of think of all this stuff in terms of inputs and outputs. You've got a different set of inputs for, for, for asset management and really only one measurement of output that's clear. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that there can be competitive pressure when you can point to something that is much lower cost that has a very similar measurable output. You know, that's a clear argument. And like I say, in my hypothetical situation where you had this great disruptor that could provide a fantastic full level of service uh, of, of, of good financial planning, good tax advice, and it could do it at a much lower cost, you know, at that point we'll see downward pressure on on pricing. But that, that hasn't happened yet suggests to me that, you know, there are reasons why it can't happen, which again suggests to me that there isn't downward pressure on cost because I think the, the pricing is about right. Mm-hmm. Okay. You mentioned a little earlier that the, the, the profession is sort of suited for a small number of large players. And you see this with some of the vertically integrated companies which are moving into this now. Do you think those are companies are going to have any impact on on, on this um on on the structure, how, how fees work? Uh yeah, I I do. And I I think unfortunately in some ways that's also where this data is largely drawn from with uh, with the FCA, because they take up so much of the regulatory time. Um, you know, we are a, a, a sort of fiercely proud of our of our relatively small size. You know, there's eight employees here, and I know there are a large number of small businesses in our sector doing good stuff. We don't have much visibility with the FCA because there's a lot of us, and individually we're not very big. Do the larger uh, the larger organisations? Yeah, if one of those started innovating on price, I think we would see some interesting, uh, some interesting results from that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a stat that, that has done the round once or twice about something like a third of advisors being employed by SJP and Quilter or something, or being connected to those to those two companies in in, in some way. Tim, do you what's your comment on that? I mean, I think uh, we've seen uh, significant consolidation in the market and COVID and the difficult economic circumstances we find ourselves in 2021 is only going to speed that up. And both in terms of sort of horizontal consolidation and vertical integration. Normally, you would expect, you know, in part, that the, if you're consolidating, you're doing so because you believe it will lower cost. And there's certainly space for, for innovation. But we would expect there to remain a large number of, of uh, different models to suit different customers. And as Alice says, you know, there are small firms providing phenomenal service to individuals and many individuals, many savers. Some want a big brand name and everything that comes with that. And some want a small firm where they can know the boss and they uh, they have that you know personal level of service that only a small firm can deliver. And so those different models for different individuals, I think, will continue. But that uh, that the consolidation is in part being driven by those regulatory costs again. Uh, and um, if those costs are not brought under control, we're less likely to see price innovation and more likely to see upward pressure on, on pricing to recoup um, those significant additional costs. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Great. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Tim, and uh, thank you, Alistair. And uh, after the break, I'll be talking to reporters Amy Austin and Rachel Mortimer about some of the issues they've been covering in the news. Thank you.
Welcome back. And joining me are reporters Amy Austin and Rachel Mortimer to talk about some of the issues that they've been covering in the news recently. Uh, Amy, uh, we'll start with you. Um, you've been covering uh, the British Steel pension saga for what feels like uh, most the better part of a decade. But I gather there's been some form of um, some form of development here. Uh, yes. Yeah, so sometime last week. Two MPs wrote to the new CEO of the FCA, just, you know, kind of pushing this issue once again, you know, not to let it kind of lie low and be forgotten about. And they were basically raising concerns that the regulator in its current form is not fit for purpose and called on it to step up its actions to ensure that consumers are being well protected and these steel workers, you know, get the justice that they're deserved. I should probably run over what's happened for those that don't know if you've been mm. living in a hole these last couple of years. Um, yes. But basically, for steel pension scheme members were asked to decide whether to move their defined benefit pension plan or stay in the existing fund, which was likely to move to the PPF. So as a result, around 8,000 members transferred out of the old scheme, which were roughly around 2.8 billion. But then, you know, concerns were raised that they were wrongly advised to do so and, you know, whether these transfers are actually suitable. So then the FCA stepped in and some companies were told to stop their transfer advice service. But, you know, this is still rumbling on. There's still firms, you know, being found out that they haven't given good advice. Um, there's loads of steel workers out there trying to get their money back, you know, trying to get justice, being left without their pension. So, yeah, there's... This is still rumbling on, you know, they're still saying that the FCA's actions actually fell short of what's actually needed to tackle this crisis and that the steps taken, in their words, were disorganised and lacking in urgency. So, yeah, they're basically pressing for more to be done now. Mm -hmm. So what do the campaigners want the FCA to do? Basically, they, they want them to step up. So they've asked them to create maybe like a dedicated consumer arm or task force, which would, you know, deal with consumer issues that pop up, not just British Steel, but, you know, in the future, hopefully, touch wood, there wouldn't be any of these issues cropping up again because you, you'd like to think that, you know, lessons have been learned and the FCA would, you know, step up when they need to. But, you know, these things happen. So that's what they kind of want to see. And in this case, they want to see more advisors held to account. You know, they want the FCA cracking down on the bad players in this profession and making sure it doesn't happen to other people. Also, um, the MPs raise concerns, which have been, you know, they've been raised before. It's not a new thing that these advisors that have done wrong are actually popping up in another firm or somewhere else. Or some of them have even, you know, turned into CMCs. Mm, Phoenixing. Oh, Phoenixing. Yeah, exactly. So... That's another thing they want them to, you know, use their enforcement powers and basically put a stop to this, because otherwise it is just going to rumble on and on and on. And, you know, advice be the ones paying for it in the end. And as you say, this has been a long running issue. Are there any concerns about timing? Yes, there are. So um, following this letter being sent out, there was actually a press conference last week with the MPs, lawyers who represent steel workers and are very familiar with the issues here and IFAs and steel workers themselves and they were saying that actually it's quite it's quite serious now and the FCA really does have to urgently act because a lot of these steel workers are actually running out of time to file claims you know take action against these rogue advisors basically it's because of like the limitation periods and the statute of limitation so 
when that time runs out, then there's nothing more that can be done. And in this case, it's six years. And, you know, some steel workers are already three, four, five years down the line. So, and we, we all know, like, we've this past year, I don't know, but it zoomed for me. So I'm sure that they're watching the clock thinking, you know, this time really is running out and there might not be anything I, we can do. Um, one of the lawyers estimated that around 2,000 to 3,000 steel workers are going to be caught out by these rules. So, you know, she was saying that if action needs to be taken right now, like we can't say, oh, in a year's time or two years' time, we're going to put this into action because it's too late. You know, it needs to be now. So, yeah, it's all quite worrying, really. Mm. Do you feel the steel workers are any closer to getting justice? I would like to hope so. I mean, there's been lots of meetings being held. Like, I know these lawyers and IFAs have been meeting with the FCA and the FOS and the pension ombudsman quite a lot recently but we haven't seen any you know this is what we're going to do but the FCA's crackdown on DB transfers and the advice there is ramping up in my opinion you know we are seeing a lot more being done in this area I don't know what you think Rach you also cover this part (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely there's there I'd like to think that there has definitely been a permanent shift in the narrative around these issues and certainly more public awareness but we know as you said that there are still advisors sort of um escaping justice for want of a better word on this and are phoenixing elsewhere and not being held account for their past actions which is you know that has the knock-on effect of next time a, a business which they may have set up uh, post shutting down the original one that gave the advice to British Steel, you know, if that business were to go under and more bills were to land with the FSCS, then we find ourselves still in this sort of vacuum of, of what we see in the last few years of the sort of polluters still not paying. Um, there's been a lot of talk around changing that from the regulator, from the FSCS. There's been campaigns in the industry, but um, sort of definite action in that area is yet to be seen. Mm, yes, it feels like um, there's been a, a lot of uh, stuff proposed, but not much action. And um, I, th- yeah. I suppose with something like Brexit taking place, um, the regulators' attention has been elsewhere. Maybe now that's out of the way. Um, they can focus on some other things. But one of the areas that they have taken action on is actually um, payments management companies recently. Uh, isn't that right, Rachel? You've been covering this. That is correct, yes. So uh, last week, the FCA set out plans uh, to cap the fees which CMCs uh, are allowed to charge consumers uh, for claims against financial services and products. Since the FCA took over regulation of CMCs back in 2019, I think it was, there have certainly been rumblings that there is a move like this coming. There's been uh, numerous communications from the regulator suggesting that it wants to see change in terms of transparency and fees and fairness in in this sector. And this consultation paper, which was published last week, seems to be that crackdown. Um, Excessive charges have been something which the advice industry have been very aware of in recent years. There are instances of some firms charging more than 40% um, on a no-win, no-fee basis. Uh, So you're talking tens of thousands in fees, which which these companies are taking from, from successful claims. But under the FCA's new rules, um, if they went ahead uh, with the proposals, and that is all it is, it is at the minute, it's still in the consultation phase, um, the fees CMCs can charge would be capped at between 15 and 30% based on the, the size of the compensation payout. So big changes there. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does this mean for consumers? 
So the FCA said that the changes could save consumers uh, 9.6 million a year. So big, big figures. One of the areas most likely to benefit from a cap is pensions. Uh, so claims against pensions products or services or advice. Um, obviously, because pension claims typically yield higher amounts of compensation, the revenues that CMCs are collecting on these type of claims are much higher than, say, in comparison to mortgages or uh, investments. For example, the the FCA, as part of this consultation, took a survey of around 30, 33 CMCs and of 19 CMCs, which were active in the pension claims area, they collected £12 million in revenues in one year um, from pension claims. So it's very lucrative business um, to be in. Nice work if you can get it. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. I mean, just as an example of of how much this could possibly save consumers, the maximum um, revenue reached on one pension claim um, by a CMC in in that sample was £87,000, 311 pence. Under the new rules, that would be capped at £10,000. So that's saving the consumer £77,000 on one pension claim. It's a huge, it's a life-changing amount. Mm, Yes, definitely. And the work of CMCs and advisors often coincides. So how did the financial advice profession react to these proposals? Yeah, as you say, there's been a a bit of friction between the the two sectors um, in in recent years. So I think from what we've seen at the moment, um, a move by the FCA to to introduce more rules and a fee cap on CMCs is definitely welcomed by advisors. We know of advisors who hold their own CMC permissions and help uh, clients with claims for bills that are in the low hundreds in comparison to the tens of thousands that we're seeing with CMCs. Um, So it is an area which advisors have also actively tried to rectify themselves and help clients. So, yeah, I think having the FCA behind them on this will certainly be welcome. Just touching quickly on uh, the topic which Amy um, spoke to us about and, and the British deal um, pension scheme scandal. We we know that CMCs have been in contact with steel workers, got hold of client lists from collapsed advice firms, and have been targeting them in terms of making claims. And that has been a big source of frustration for people in the industry that they're being targeted in this way. Um, so certainly a signal by the FCA that it, it is cracking down on any form of malpractice in the CMC industry will be beneficial in that instance and welcomed by a lot of people, I think. Great. Well, hopefully the steelworkers will get the the justice they deserve and hopefully uh, CMCs will become a more professional uh, outfit uh, as a result of the uh, FCA's regulation. Thank you, Amy, and thank you, Rachel, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in and tuning again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.